Well, again, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here along with Rich. And it is uh, delightful to be able to be with you here this morning. Uh, I really do believe that um, our presence here is important. God speaks to us in a unique way that moves and shapes this world when we are gathered uh, together. So I want to thank you for, for being here. Uh, before I pray, I do want to introduce uh, one of our missionaries. Sharon Morgan is here, uh, so we can give her a big round of applause. Yep. She and her husband, uh, David, do some fantastic work with Wycliffe, correct? Awesome. Good. I always feel embarrassed when I get things like that wrong. Um, but uh, with Wycliffe Bible Translation, and so uh, please take a moment to say hello to her and, uh, and see how you can be praying, praying for them um, as they go about their work. Um, the other thing before we get started is uh, during our worship service, uh, worship time of music, Jessica uh, had... Uh, a song and, and some words, and so we're going to invite her up to come and sing that. And that's going to act as our prayer uh, to engage with the word this morning. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Everyday Influence. And as many of you know, uh, One Life Church, we operate on the, the academic calendar. And so for us in our planning and preparation, this is the last sermon series of the year. Um, and then we're going to kick off something new in September. But I do feel like this is the perfect series to end with because it wraps up a lot of the stuff we've been talking about this last year, but it also sets us up perfectly to be moving into the fall and a whole new year. Um, this series, we're going to explore the reality of the influence that we have, whether we think we have it or not. Uh, and so I wanted to ask, as Christians in this world, do you know that you have influence? Every single one of us Every single one of us. In 1993, a professional basketball player named Charles Barkley was becoming famous for his aggressive uh, play on the court. Uh, and at the same time, he was becoming famous 
for that, there were some questions about, man, is that the best way to play? And even beyond that, some of the things he would say in interviews and stuff like that. And so he was asked in an interview, wow, what, did, what do you think about the effect that might have on the kids who look up to you and these things? And he said, I'm not a role model. That was his answer. I'm, I'm not a role model. And soon after that, Nike put together a commercial featuring Charles Barkley where his phrase was, I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. And I agree with that statement. He is not paid to be a role model. What I disagree with is his uh, understanding that he is not a role model regardless of whether or not he gets paid for it. Every single one of us is a role model. We don't always know where and when that's going to happen because even in his saying, I'm not a role model, he's being a role model. He's telling all the people who look up to him, yeah, you're not responsible for what other people think about you or you're not responsible for even trying to meet that. It's up to everyone else to decide. Having influence is not something we necessarily have a choice about. What kind of influence we have, on the other hand, is completely different. We do have a choice about that. And this series is intended to explore the reality of the everyday influence we have and what that looks like. And so we're going to be spending the next six weeks exploring this by looking at today what it means that we are all image bearers of God. Second, what is the good news of Jesus? Third, that we play a role in this creation as what are called priests. Then we're going to take a look at how everyone has a deeper longing for something more. Then we're going to look at what's called who are the people in your neighborhood from the old Sesame Street skit. Getting to know the places and spaces and the people that we are around. And lastly, following the promptings of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit moves and has influence on this world. And so the hope is that as we move through this series, we're going to realize the amazing gift that we have to have an influence on the world around us and also to be influenced. What kind of influence we can have in all the things of life, big or small, or what we call everyday influence. I also want you to know there's going to be one main scripture we're going to look at. It's a big hunk, but after that, and we'll read that one, but after that, there are going to be lots of scriptures that I reference, but I'm, we just don't have time for me to read through each one of those. So I want to encourage you, there's a space inside your bulletin that's blank uh, to write those scriptures down, and then on your own for further study or investigation, I would encourage you to go look those up and, and, and see how those fit in with what we've talked about this morning. Uh, so we're going to start this series by going back to the very beginning, the beginning of the Bible, way back in Genesis 1, because we need to start there. Uh, the church in general, especially in the Western world, has lost some of, it, some of, if not all of its ability to be what the Bible calls salt and light in the world. And so the influence we do have is often very bland. And why is that? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that people who are asking big questions, questions about what it means to be human, is there something beyond the things we see? Why do bad things happen? All these kinds of things. They're not breaking down the doors of the church to ask those questions. Well, it's because we have communicated that we don't care about a lot of those things and that, and that we've become irrelevant in many ways. I remember... Uh, hearing Richard Dawkins give a talk at the University of Washington. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Richard Dawkins is one of the leading atheists uh, in the world. He's also a brilliant scientist, wrote a lot of books. He's talked about a lot of stuff. Very, very fascinating guy. Um, during this talk, which was on uh, one of his books, uh, they gave space for people to uh, email some questions, and then the MC or the moderator would give those questions to Dr. Dawkins. And one of the questions that came in, and I was actually surprised that they, they asked, was, um, 
What are the questions that, uh, that evolution does not answer for you? Uh, Richard Dawkins is one of the leaders in, in the study of evolution. And so they asked, what questions doesn't that answer for you? Uh, and I thought, what an amazing question. And what a terrifying question, right? Uh, we as Christians really don't like questions like that because we hate saying things like, I don't know. We run from saying that there are questions that maybe we don't understand God to have an answer for or we don't understand Scripture to have an answer for. And so we don't like being uncertain about anything. Dawkins right away said, that's a fantastic question, and here are three questions I can think of just off the top of my head. The first is, why is there subjective thinking? That at some point, evolution should rule this out because subjective thinking allows us to keep making decisions that are not based on instinct and fact alone, that uh, we can make decisions outside of reason. Uh, The second is based off the first and that subjective thinking plays a role in reproduction uh, because at some point we have the ability to, uh, what he said is is evolution should streamline streamline this so that only the fittest of our species should be mating with the fittest of our species. Yet we have choices to make and we often make choices that work against some of the currents and flows of, of evolution. Uh, and, and third, the thing that, and this is the one that I want to key off on, is that he said, this is the one that keeps me up at night, is how did everything begin? Now, I want you to know, first of all, I'm not saying anything at all about what you or I should or should not believe about evolution. Uh, that's not the point of this. What I'm saying is, is that one of the leaders in evolutionary study is saying there are some questions that at this point he can't answer through evolution. And I remember thinking, God does have things to say about those things. Right? And what if the two of us could actually sit down and have a conversation and I could say, hey, you have some questions. And would I be brave enough to say, actually, I have some questions and I respect you as an expert in your field that maybe some of the things you have to say could help me understand some things. But we've burned those bridges with him. In 2016, uh, Dr. Dawkins suffered from a minor stroke and there was a debate amongst Christians as to whether or not to pray for him to recover. You could follow this online, right? Um, Yeah, and and thankfully there were lots who said, yes, absolutely we should pray. But there were many who were like, no, we shouldn't. Do you see what that communicates to him? We're more concerned about being right, and not in the sense of actually living out the truth, but in a sense of winning. I'm going to win an argument and vanquish our foes. We're so focused on that that we lose reality of what God might actually be doing in the world and in the lives of the people he loves. Because if Richard Dawkins is truly our enemy, which many of us think, then we're supposed to pray for him. Jesus is pretty direct about that. And maybe that prayer is for salvation, but maybe we could also pray for him to have a healthy life that he could enjoy that salvation. Right? Maybe. And if he's not our enemy, then we absolutely should be praying for him also. Right? There's, there's no debate in this. But we've lost the plot. So hopefully we can rediscover some of that today. Because when we do, I think we're no longer going to have to argue to win. I don't think we're going to have to, like, shut people down so that we can say, Aha! I'm right. You're wrong. I've triumphed over you. Hopefully we can live freely out of those kinds of chains and free to live out the gospel in the way that God has both invited and intended us to. And we can still have debates. We can still have those discussions. But now it's from a different viewpoint of not I'm just trying to crush you. So we're going to start by reading through uh, Genesis 1 through 2, verse 3. So it's a long hunk. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. So if you want to read along there, you can, or you can follow along uh, in your Bible. Uh, So here we go. Genesis 1 through 2, 3. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female He created them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy 
because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. When we look at Genesis 1, we often do so in a way that is not as helpful as I think we would like it to be. We're often not listening, we're not observing, we're not getting the point. Because the point of Genesis 1 is not history, nor is it science. It's asking some questions that most of the ancient world was asking, which is, who did all this? And what does it mean to be in this space? What does it mean to be a human in this space? And it does it in a different fashion. It does it in a poetic fashion. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But it, it's about this really earthy stuff. About this place. The ground. The dirt. The animals. But we often like the more spiritual stuff. The heavenly stuff. The angels. The Jesus in white kind of stuff. I think part of it is because we also know that this place is where pain happens. We know that. We know what's coming in this story. And so we sit in kind of this idyllic world for just a moment, but we don't want to let ourselves get too attached to it because we know what's coming. We know the bad news. We're, we're waiting for chapter 3 with the fall of humanity. And so for some of us, we're very eager to get out of Genesis. And for many of us, I think we'd find deeply rooted in our beliefs is this idea that we're actually just waiting to get out of this place. This place is doomed Jesus is coming back, and so I'm just waiting for him. Because after he comes, we're going to get to go away to a place where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, and there's no death. And that sounds pretty good. But that's not actually how God has designed things. And I want to say right now, any of us who think we're going to heaven are absolutely mistaken. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. I do want to let you know that a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is heavily borrowed from a guy named Rick Watts. And uh, Rick Watts is the lead research professor at Regent College in Vancouver in the New Testament. And so, um, uh, yeah, I just want to give credit where credit is due, that, that a lot of stuff we're talking about is, is from him. So if it seems like, I would just be quoting him endlessly. So instead of doing that, I'll just give one big quote now, uh, and, and hopefully that'll help. But um, I kn so we spent just a moment in the beginning, and now, even though I said we're going to start in the beginning, we're going to jump completely to the end. Uh, and, and look at Revelation for just a moment. Revelation is the last book of the Bible written by this guy named John, who's one of Jesus' disciples and good friends. And he has this prophetic, apocalyptic vision. And then he writes one of the greatest pieces of poetry in the history of the world. Now, here's that quick word about poetry. We live in a time where a lot of us don't give a lot of credit to, to poetry. Um, we don't necessarily think that it uh, speaks truth. Uh, we look at it as an art form, something like that. But um, I want to ask you this question. Um, this is the opening lines of a poem by William Blake called The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. Now, from that alone, I feel like I can learn quite a bit about tigerness. Um, the opening two lines of this poem when I compare that to my own personal reading of a 55-volume genome map of tiger DNA, I have to ask which communicates more about tigerness. And the conclusion I come to is that they're both necessary. We need both of those things, but we often err on one side or the other. Our culture right now tends to err more on the side of we're going to get everything we need from the genome map. But this poem speaks something to us that we can't get from the genome map. And we can't read it like we would read 
a lot of the things we do. Because otherwise we end up saying, aha, tiger, tiger, burning bright. That's about the propensity of feral cats to ignite spontaneously during their feral wanderings. Right? That's not it. That's not what it's about at all. Right? But it says something about it. And if we can listen to it in the way it was intended, we can get something. And what were all those questions that the ancient world was asking? And what were the questions that Dr. Dawkins was asking? How, how did this all begin? What does it mean to be human in this space? And can these questions be on, answered by these poems? Back to Revelation. We read in uh, Revelation 21 about this place called the New Jerusalem. And there are some amazing things we read about this city. This is after this period where Jesus is going to come back and there's this sort of rescue operation that's going to take place. And so we hear about this new Jerusalem. And and there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of measurements. And and all those things, what they add up to is this is like a perfect place. It's fantastic and amazing. But when we get to the end of the chapter, there's something that John notices is missing. Now, I want to ask you, if you were building a city that was dedicated to God, and his worship, and the people are going to be there worshiping all the time, and it's going to be awesome. What might you want to put somewhere in the city, if not in the very middle? Anyone? Just shout it out. Temple, right. That's one of the things I would think, like a place of worship, right? That seems like high priority. But John says the temple is not there. And he says that it's because this is where God lives. This is this temple. That God is there and he is the temple. So the temple's not there. And the city is this interesting shape. It's shaped like a cube. Three dimensions, cube. What else can we think of in Scripture that is shaped like that? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, for one. And the temple, or the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so one of the things that Dr. Watts would say, Rick Watts, is that this is, this new Jerusalem is this new temple. And so there doesn't need to be a temple, because the Holy of Holies was the place in the Old Testament where God's presence dwelt, right? And so this is the same thing. This is this whole city that is like that, where not just the high priest can go, because that was the, the, the way it worked, that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and would go in with a rope tied around him in case he died in there and they had to pull him out. Because there were all these purification rituals and all these things. But now what this is saying is this new place, you don't have to do any of that. And that sounds pretty awesome. Sounds like a place would not be so bad to be. We also read, though, that it comes down from heaven. And this is what I was saying when, uh, when I'm saying that none of us is going to go to heaven because heaven's going to come to us. Uh, and, and what I want to get at here is I think that um, we have this idea about what's going to happen to the current earth and heaven. Um, and, and I want to challenge that because I think most of us think it's going to be burned up like in ashes and it's going to be gone. Um, in, in the way that we often see things passing away. But I, I want to ask the question, haven't we learned something different about how death works since Jesus showed up? Haven't we learned something about redemption and resurrection? This even has resurrection language to it, this passage. It says that the old or the first, uh, the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and then this new one shows up. And instead of thinking of the old one as like something that's crumpled up and thrown away, What if we thought about it as something that was going to be resurrected, like Jesus was? Like we think those who follow Jesus are. Like we believe that when God's at work in something, his work is to resurrect and redeem. 
So that changes how we think about this place. But so many of us are focused on getting to that place that we're working so hard and hoping we just behave right, that we're going to get scooped up and dropped in that place at some point that we forget about this life. And so then why are we surprised when the kind of influence we have in our culture is little or bland because what we've told them is we're disinterested in this world. And so we become distant from a reality where the world is cared about. Do you know that the idea of an immortal soul is not a Christian idea, but it's a pagan idea. Christians don't believe in an immortal soul disconnected from a body. Saving souls is not a Christian idea. Christians believe in a holy, resurrected person, body and soul, a body living in life everlasting. And so I am no longer interested in saving souls. I'm interested in helping people come to know God here and now in order that they can experience a redeemed and resurrected body that includes their soul for sure, but is certainly not limited to that. Because when we start believing in just the soul as the sort of outgoing experience of what's going to happen to us, then we do disassociate from this place. And that has some unhealthy consequences. Okay, I want to go back to Genesis. Remember those questions they're trying to answer. How did this all start? Who did this? And what does it mean to be human in this place? In the ancient world, a king would do some things to establish their realm and show the extent of their kingdom. First is they would sort of build a palace. And they would put up monuments all around within that palace and within their realm to let people know this was so-and-so's realm or kingdom. And in Genesis, we start with something that has no structure. It's formless and void. It's empty. And then what happens? God begins to put structure to it. Light and dark, he's giving form. Waters above and below. Land and sea. And so there are structures. And then what does God do? He fills that structure. Sun, moon, and stars. Birds and fish. Humanity and Adam and Eve. And then God does what other kings do when their kingdom is established. That he enjoys it. He dwells in it. He moves and reigns in it. Again, this isn't science. This is literature. We do well to treat both of those disciplines appropriately. And here we read further in Scripture. There are a bunch of metaphors that are used poetically to illuminate this reality of creation being a building project. We read all over that creation has foundations. In Psalm 75, 3, it says that God's the one who holds the earth's pillars when there is an earthquake. We read about creation having windows, canopies, gates, storehouses, etc. This is all architectural language, language describing a structure. If we look at Isaiah 66, we find out what structure. Heaven is my throne, God says, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being? I want to ask you, what buildings house a throne and a footstool? palace, right? Did you know that very often in the Bible, the word that we translate palace, haikel, is also translated temple? So creation, heaven and earth, is God's palace temple. It's not just the heavens, but it's also the earth. And if this is true, that means that the earth is something sacred. Revelation 11.18 speaks of the 24 elders who surround the throne of God saying, It is time for destroying those who destroy the earth. Ouch. 
feel like we leave that one out a lot. So God makes his temple, and then he fills it, and then he puts his image in it, because that's what rulers and kings do. We read in Genesis that we are created in the image of God. We are the image bearers in God's kingdom. In the ancient world, the king would put up these statues or some other kind of image structure depicting who that king was and that this was their realm. And to mistreat, destroy, or damage any one of those images is considered high treason against the king. If you want to get at someone, damage or destroy something that has that kind of symbolic meaning to them. How many of you remember in April 9th of 2003, a huge crowd of Iraqi people gathered around together with some U.S. Marines pulling down the, the statue of the, that, the president uh, of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Why did they do that? Because it was a statement to Saddam Hussein saying, you don't rule here anymore. You have no authority here. We reject your reign. And so we're choosing new rulers or we are giving ourselves to another ruler. In Genesis 3, we read again that we are the image of God. And so what does that say about how we are to treat one another? That means that every act of abuse against another human being is an act of high treason against God. Every time we manipulate someone, destroy someone's character... If we're paid to do a day's work and we slack off, if we make a bid for a project and lie about its value, when we drive on the freeway not thinking about others, when we cheat someone, when we hate someone because they have something we don't, when we hate someone because they've made different decisions than we have or their skin is a different color than ours, when we shame our children, when we abuse our power over those who cannot speak or fight for themselves, and that's a small sample of a large list of things we do that are acts of high treason against the creator God of the universe. So much so that Jesus says, if anyone even calls someone a fool in their minds, we have crossed that line. Why? Because we are the image bearers of God. Each and every one of us. And God cares more deeply than we can understand about each one of us. And so in Genesis 3, we have this moment where humanity and Adam and Eve declares their autonomy from God. And what happens after that? Murder? Jealousy and more murder? Those are some of the stories that follow right after humanity decides it knows what's best for us. But God doesn't give up on them. God keeps caring for them, loving them, working with them. There are certainly consequences to what they did. And then God calls Israel and says, Israel, you are my son. In Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. And so God calls his firstborn son out of Egypt and intends for them to be the ones to show the world who he is. The ones who are going to follow God and look like God and how they treat creation and they treat within that how they treat humanity. And that's going to show the world who God is. Because the more we follow God and the more we show the world who he is, the more fully human we become. But we often reverse that. Again, I can't wait to get out of this place and be something else, the floaty, spirity thing. Listen to how we talk. What's one of our most common sayings after we make a mistake or do something wrong? Well, I'm only human. I lied. Well, I'm only human. No, 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 no. We didn't lie because we are human. We lied because we're behaving subhuman. Humans were never designed for that. To be human is to be made in the image of God. To show and live out what God looks like. And lying isn't part of that. 
When we lie, we're not behaving human. Justice, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, love, those are what it means to be human. Because what it means to be human is to live and express who God is. How many people are knocking on the door of our churches and our homes asking us about what it means to be human? Very few. Again, because we've communicated to them that being human doesn't matter so much. We've lost this reality that everyone is created in the image of God and therefore everyone has a way that they live that out. And we think we're the authorities on what this means. And we have learned some things for sure. But if we cannot realize that we have things to learn from every single person that exists because they're also created in the image of God and done so in such a way that allows them to honor and love God uniquely just by being themselves, if we can't get that straight in our hearts and minds, then we're never going to be in a position to connect with anybody. So Israel is called to be this example, to live out this image of God thing. And they fail. They can't do it. They keep trying. God keeps working with them. They're very serious about it at times. They pray. They worship in huge, beautiful, expensive buildings with really kicking bands. Good prayer seminars, worship meetings, all of that. But at some point, God says, it's all a bunch of noise. And why? Because you come into my places of worship, you tell me that you love me and you'll follow me and how important I am, and you go out and treat the one thing that I made in my image with contempt. So they're trying to figure this out. They're trying to work. And God's trying to, just as Jessica's saying, God's trying to pull them in. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. Come on. Come, come with me. You come to me. We'll get this figured out. There's a long period of time, about 400 years, where Israel doesn't hear anything from God. And during that time, people are forming their ideas about what it means to be God's people, what it means to be human in this place. You've got a group called the Zealots, and their answer is sort of, uh, we're going to take over, kind of military fashion. We're going to cause these riots, and we're going to establish the rule. You've got another group called the Pharisees, and their idea is like, oh, we've got to get really serious about, about the rules we have. And so they make up... A ton of rules. And, and understand me, this is out of a love for God. They're trying to say, I want to be devoted and love you. And the, way, the best way to do that is to ensure that we don't do anything to mess up. And there are other groups too. But then Jesus comes along in the midst of this and does something different. Jesus, through a lot of experiences that we don't have time to go through, but you should read the Gospels. They're all in there. Um, But Jesus shows us what we're to be doing all along. Jesus, at points, is tempted to use his power for personal gain to manipulate and force people to love him. And yet, who is able to pray to his Abba, to his Papa, on the eve of his arrest and death, not my will, but yours. Not what I want, God, but what you want. Because I could change this. I could force my hand. I could wipe them out. I could be the kind of Messiah that all these people want. That they want me to come in and be a military leader and I could crush Rome. I could do it but not what I want or what they want, but only what you want. And so Jesus, in obedience and faithfulness to God and love to us, sacrifices his own body, the very thing that God says, don't touch. That's how serious God is about this, that Jesus sacrifices his body for our body's sake, for our whole person in the here and now. And I think that should tell us a lot about how we're supposed to treat one another. We felt it was really important to start this series off with this topic because it's absolutely foundational to the kind of influence we can have in this world. 
And it's time for us to continue the work of rebuilding bridges with the people around us that we've torn down by doing what Jesus told us to do, which is two things, love God and love our neighbor. And he answers the question, who is our neighbor, with a simple, basically everyone. And I know that seems simple and cheesy. Love? Let me run you through some ancient world things really quick. Um, In the ancient world under Roman rule, there were uh, big rubbish piles, meaning garbage piles, And they have recorded uh, letters. They have the actual document of people saying things like, uh, if the baby is a boy, keep it. And if it's a girl, put it on the rubbish pile. And so they would take unwanted children and put them on these rubbish piles. And there were uh, two groups of people who actually cared about this. uh, Slavers, because they would go and raise those kids because they could raise them and then sell them into slavery. And kind of ancient pimps, because they would go and raise these girls and, then, and boys and sell them into prostitution. Until this third group came along, led by Jesus, Christians, who said, you know what? People matter. These are people. They're not just things meant to be used. You can't just raise them up so you can use them. And so it wasn't like, hey, let's, let's go get all these babies and raise them up so they can be the leaders in our new movement. No, this was let's go get them and raise them up because God's image is there. Women were property. They certainly couldn't speak in public gatherings. And yet now, with the onset of the early church, they're allowed to prophesy. It's not just speaking in public gatherings. It's speaking as the voice of God. If we were still running... By Roman rules, two-thirds of the people in this room would be slaves. But we're not. Because Jesus and his followers said, people matter. Is it cheesy? I don't think so. But if you think it is, then I want some of that cheese. So whatever you think, it's fine. But whatever it is, I think it's time for us to change the way we do things. We've been going through this book in our church called um, Surprise the World, Five Habits of Missional People. And it talks about blessing people, eating with people, listening, learning, and being sent. And they're just simply outward habits that intend to honor God and our neighbors. And I want to let you know they're a great way to begin to build in us this sort of internal rhythm that becomes part of what we're doing, hopefully like breathing, that is a way for us to be outward, is a way for us to honor people as image bearers of God. And so hopefully you can take a chance and look at that. But I want you to begin to think a little bit differently about the world, about creation and about humanity within creation. Because if the stuff that I'm talking about is true, then we as a church have some things we need to do differently. I want to invite the worship team to come up and the prayer team too. Uh, In your bulletin are these things called connection cards. We mentioned those earlier. And uh, if you'd be willing, I have a couple questions I'm going to put up in a minute that I would like you to answer. Um, and, uh, and, and write those in there if you would. The worship team is going to play for a minute and give you time to, to write some of those answers down, um, and then they're going to sing a song. And again, we do this. It's a great way for us to join in prayer with you about the things you're thinking and, and, and stuff like that. But again, I, I want to make sure you understand, we do see these as also a way to hear from you how the Holy Spirit is moving in our church. And so uh, if you would please take a moment to do that, we really, really value that. Um, and I do want to say, too, that the song that we're going to sing uh, after this is, uh, This Is My Father's World. Um, and there's a verse that uh, uh, a contemporary artist has added in there. And lots of times we don't like it when 
people add verses into hymns. We think they're good the way they were. Why do they? But we do this all the time. Most hymns have like anywhere between 10 and 20 verses, and a lot of those get taken out, but I don't really hear us saying things about that. We're pretty happy that they don't have. Uh, and I was at a wedding where uh, a hymn was sang to the tune of Be Thou My Vision. And I was like, you can't just do that. You've got to write a new song for the new song, right? No. The world has been doing this for a long time. The church has been doing this for a long time. And so if, if you like the words, awesome. Enter in and sing. If you don't like the words, that's fine too. But I, what I want to ask you is if you would consider, is there something in there that God has for us and has for you? Um, and, and you can still not like it. Uh, and then you can come and talk to Brian or I. We would love to, to engage with you about that. But I want to, I wanna, again, put us in a position of, like, can we be open to what these words might say? Uh, so the questions I would like, I just want you to be ready for that. Uh, so the questions I would like you to, to answer and write down if you can is, one, what stuck out to you in our service this morning? Anything from the entire time you've been here today, whether it's been during the sermon, worship time, what Jessica sang, announcements, anything, what has what stuck out to you? Uh, second, write down the names of two people who influence you and two names of people who you influence. Now, this could be people in your family, could be friends, could be famous people or people whose books you've read or whatever. But just thinking about and getting into that mind frame of we have influence and we are influenced also. And then uh, lastly, are there people that you have a hard time seeing as God Im- God's image bearers? And write down two names. Uh, so I would like you to, to just think on that for a second, and then we will join you uh, as you pray throughout the week about how you can uh, sort of reimagine uh, those people as God's image bearers. And so I'll pray, the worship team will play, you can work on those, and then we'll sing. Dear God, I give you great thanks this morning for your invitation to, to, to allow ourselves to be drawn to you. God, that you are pulling and that we, in a sense, can fight against that or we can walk with that, that, that you, sort of the, the current of your tide is drawing us in. And so, so I pray that we would be open to the directions that you would lead us. God, and I do pray that you would help us to see everyone as your image bearer. As we begin to think about what it means that we have everyday influence, whether it's in those Moments, just the, the daily moments with, with our kids or our friends where we might be feeling a little raw and, and, and how we communicate things. I pray you would help us take that next step. We can own who we are and we can also begin to see other people before ourselves as those image bearers of God. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.